Just a quick programming note before we begin today's episode. For those who have small children or family members around, this may not be 100% the best episode to listen to in front of them because we do go into some sensitive topics, specifically allegations of sexual assault and sexual abuse. But there is a lot of great information about Maggie and about things that are happening outside of those allegations and those issues. So please listen to the beginning and the end. Just maybe skip over that little middle part. So let's get to the show. My roommate, my freshman, sophomore, and junior year of college at the University of Kansas was from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. It's a suburb of Tulsa. It's one of those places that you've probably gone to or ridden through when you've been at Tulsa Tough. As far as I know, it is a wonderful place, but it is very, very far away from Chicago, where I grew up. I remember distinctly a conversation that he and I were having during the course of our freshman year in which he clearly indicated that his lack of understanding of what Chicago was like. I'm sure I did the same thing a million times for Oklahoma when I'd once tried to argue that there were more cows in Illinois than in Oklahoma, a fact that I admit I'm wrong with now. But he, in a straight face, looked at me and said, well, given that you're so darn close to Canada, you probably get Canadian money and talk to Canadians all the time. I just was dumbfounded because Lake Michigan, Wisconsin, Michigan itself, there's a lot of territory in between the city of Chicago and Canada, but not for him. He didn't seem to care. It was north of St. Louis, therefore it was Canada. My first proper trip to Canada was in 2001 when I was there swimming in BC. I've loved every time I've gone to BC. It's a great place. It's a place that, you know, I probably should go more often, maybe like BC Super Week. I think that's a great idea, Rob. I'm glad that you just had that. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We're here to talk about Maggie Colslister. She's a Canadian, hence the entire start of this discussion about Canada. We're here to talk about her meteoric rise and all the things that she's hoping to get out of this sport. But we're also here to talk about something a little bit more serious than the fun world of bike racing, and that is we need to have a conversation about sexual assault, sexual abuse, and sexual harassment in sport in general, but in our sport in specific. The conversation that we have with Maggie is about the ramifications of allegations that she has made of sexual assault and sexual harassment on a team that she was on in Belgium. We don't discuss much about the facts of that case during the course of her interview because we're more interested in in what she did around those facts. I'm here to present very briefly the facts as I can recite them based on articles that I've read that come from MaggieColesLister.com. That's her website. And specifically an article from a publication known as Canadian Cycling Magazine. Cyclingmagazine.ca is the website. You can go there and look at it. So here are the facts per that article and per that publication. In April of 2017, an 18-year-old Maggie Coles-Lister was signed by a women's continental team from Belgium. 
I do not speak any of the languages that are predominant in Belgium. I'm not going to try to pronounce the name of the team. I would just ruin any sort of hope and dreams of being accepted by Belgian society by showing my terrible pronunciation. But here's the point. During the course of post-race massages, Maggie was sexually assaulted by a team Swanier. She also was subject to harassing text messages from the Swanier who took pictures of her when she was having team meals and at other events and sent them to her with messages that were completely inappropriate. She returned home to Canada to finish her last semester of high school, and before she was ready to go back over to Europe, she confided in her parents about the sexual assault and harassment that she had received over in Belgium. Other women eventually came forward with their own allegations of sexual assault and harassment, and the UCI opened an investigation. That investigation has not concluded as of today's date, or at least I couldn't find any evidence of a conclusion, and Maggie didn't know about it either. Those are the facts. This also provides us with an opportunity to give some resources to individuals who may find themselves unfortunately, the victims of sexual assault or sexual abuse or sexual harassment. The key point is that you are absolutely not alone and that there are people out there who are professionals capable of assisting and helping you. For example, Maggie spoke about the Cyclist Alliance, an organization that we've spoken about before on this show. After our conversation, I reached out to the Cyclist Alliance to ask about what information that we could provide to everybody from them. The Cyclist Alliance, obviously, all UCI female riders can become a member of the Cyclist Alliance and access services. Anyone else can actually join the Cyclist Alliance. For example, this podcast is a supporter of the Cyclist Alliance. We have joined and we have, quote unquote, adopted a rider, which means that we provided funds for that rider to access services from the Cyclist Alliance. If you have any questions, you can reach out to them at info at cyclistalliance.org. Any rider, whether they are a member of the Cyclist Alliance or not, can contact them if they are experiencing abuse within the sport. As in the case with the UCI Ethics Commission or their National Safe Sport Contact Point, for purposes of confidentiality, anything that you give or any information that you give to the Cyclist Alliance will remain strictly confidential. There is, of course, the international version of Safe Sport, like what we have here in the United States. The international Safe Sport is safesportinternational.com. Here in the U.S., we have Safe Sport. That's safesport.org. It's their website. You can go there, and there is actually a portal where you can report a Safe Sport concern. You can also call 833-5-US-SAFE. That's 833-587-7233 to report a safe sport concern. Please, if you have any reason to need to go there, go there. Report the concerns that you have. This is serious stuff. They are here to help you and to help all of us. 
This is also a very special episode for us because it is Celine Oberholzer's first episode as a lead producer. It has been a goal and ambition of mine to promote Celine and to promote Alan and to constantly push them out of their comfort zones to take a larger and more robust role in describing the news of the day and in being a member of this community and in helping lead this effort to bring notoriety and publicity to the American Criterion Peloton. And I could not be prouder of the work that Celine did on this episode. In true fashion, I let her pick the guest. I let her pick the topics. I let her do everything that she wanted to do. And she dove head first into possibly one of the hardest and most emotionally wrenching topics that one could find. The result is, is as you will hear, something that I'm very proud of and that I can't be happier for her to have done. We are segue alert. I know it's going to be a rough one. We are a part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is the website. Please go there, become a member of the website, become a member of the network, and help support shows like like the Slow Ride Podcast or the Grodio Cyclocross Radio, Nowhere Fast. There's a lot of great content that we're putting out, and it's all independent media. Please become a member and subscribe. This show is brought to you, like always, by Source Endurance. Source-e.net is the website there. It is a full-service coaching company to help make you the best endurance athlete that you can possibly be. They offer not just coaching services, but nutrition services, guidance on how to conquer the Belgian waffle ride, like they just had a Belgian waffle ride survival camp in Cedar City before the Belgian waffle ride Cedar City event took place. They'll be doing that for BWR in San Diego as well this winter. What a great time to be in San Diego during the winter when it's ice cold everywhere else. So go to source-e.net, take a look at all the offerings that they've got there. And when you find what you're looking for, use the promo code Criterium Nation, all one word, for $50 off your first month of coaching. Okay, so as I said, this is Celine's producer debut. So you're not going to hear a lot from me. You're going to hear more from Celine and a ton from Maggie Coles Lister. And we're doing that right now. I'm Maggie Coles Lister. I race for DNA Pro Cycling. I'm a track and road racer, and I am from Maple Ridge, BC, Canada. I'm very excited to have you on the show, um, especially since we've been racing together all season. And speaking of the season, you've been absolutely crushing it. Um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about your successes this year? Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty unreal to come back into the race season and suddenly just come back in kind of on top and like doing well because you go through the whole pandemic and you really don't know well you don't know what other people are doing you know how you feel but you don't really know how you're going to compare to others when once you hit that start line and I mean the pandemic was definitely a blessing in disguise for me just to get a good training block that I have never really gotten in the past, like going through junior and balancing track and road and cyclocross at one point, then just getting that and building my engine, I think was 
the biggest thing I could have done to improve my racing. So yeah, coming into the year and kicking it off with winning the overall at Armed Horses and second day, and now sitting third overall in USA Crits and first in Young Rider and uh, team sitting first overall is like <laughs> crazy. It's been uh, very amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Not to mention you won the uh, Young Rider at Joe Martin, right? Oh, yeah. And the Young Rider at Joe Martin. So I guess let's go back to uh, the beginning of the year, which kind of feels like a different lifetime at um, Armed Forces. If you'd like to walk us through, I guess, the last few laps of Clarendon, kind of give us a feel of what that was like kicking off the season with a win that big. Yeah. Okay. So to start that one out, going into that day, like I was second on the first day of Armed Forces. I, I know, like knowing myself, I know I have I have a long sprint. And going into that second day, I'm like, okay, I just need to jump Kendall and Skylar first. Like if I get the jump on them, I convinced myself I would win. And that would be what I needed to do. So yeah, we're going into the last few laps. Pretty much the whole team was still there. And I think there was a lot of chit chat on the radio. You're right, though. This does feel like ages ago now, looking back at this. I had Heather up there, kind of just sitting on her wheel and she's making space for me. And yeah, going into those last two corners, I, as I say, just like full scent, (laughs) held on for dear life through that corner, took the inside line uh, on Kendall and Skylar and jumped out of that corner looked up saw the finish line what like 250 300 meters away like that's a long sprint (laughs) I'm like okay well like head down let's just go and so we did and realized probably a little too soon that we were going to win and got a little excited with the uh, arms up and almost lost that because of it when you look back at the uh, photo finish but success we held on to that first place and that was so exciting because it's one of the first big wins I've gotten yeah that's absolutely incredible um and you've had a lot of really incredible experiences this year so kind of out of everything I guess you have a big selection and this might be a hard question but like what was the highlight of the year for you so most of these races we've done this year except for armed forces this has been my first year actually doing all the USA crits and all these races. So it was my first Tulsa Tough. It was my first Athens Twilight. And both of those definitely lived up to my expectations. Like, I don't know, you you can testify to this. There's something about just racing in front of a crowd that is absolutely ecstatic and drunk and all that fun stuff. (laughs) 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 And it's just so exciting and has you so on edge. And I don't know, it just changes the way you race like you're actually a performer and you're putting on a show for the crowd so experiencing both that and I mean being covered in mud at crybaby hill (laughs) kind of unexpected (laughs) considering it was 40 degrees and uh sunny but yeah both of those races I'd say were my favorite experiences this year and came out with podiums at both of them except for that second day of Tulsa Tough where we can talk about that if we want. I'll totally own up to my uh, learning experience there. <laughs> well, can can we talk about that? Because like you did mention with regard to Clarendon that you went full send. 
And that's like every time I've watched you race and I've gotten the pleasure of watching you race quite a bit because master's races typically happen right before the women's race. And so like I have seen you go full send a couple of times and, you know, at St. Uh, at St. Francis at Tulsa tough on the second day in the arts district, you, you went full send and into the corner and then Salt Lake city, you hit the deck again, going all out for the win, but you also came back like the next day, you know, with what some of us thought was a broken nose, but, and definitely staying up until 4am in the hospital. I think that's when Celine finally admitted that like she was a super fan of Maggie Cole's Lister. You know, what is it about you that goes so easily full send all the time and, you know, the results stack up for it, good and bad? Well, I think this mentality I have in my head is this is either going to work out in my favor or it's not. And a lot of this has been a learning experience for me and testing the limits of what I can do and what I can't. And the goal is never to crash. But unfortunately, at Tulsa, that put me on the ground coming in just a little too hot into that final corner and taking a weird line and catching a bit of gravel on the outside and just slid out. And luckily, nobody else went down, which is probably whatever the best part you can get out of a crash. (laughs) only taking yourself out and that one I just walked away with some road rash which was really lucky and just learned my lesson of how I need to approach the final corner and maybe break a little uh (laughs) and or like for the past few crits I've ridden the course at speed like pre-riding it or have followed some guys around those final lines and just to really get an idea of what I can do for speed around that final line and what's the best corner to take. So that's been very helpful. And then, yeah, so that one wasn't bad to bounce back and race the next day, but Salt Lake was definitely hit the deck harder with that one. And uh, that was just one of those freak crashes where catch bars and face plant. Yeah. It's, it's quite amazing that I did not break my nose because that was my first thought when I lifted my head and just blood and like I do not do well with blood so if people saw me lying there for a long time and were extremely concerned it is because every time I lifted my face there was blood and I couldn't deal with that (laughs) yeah so that was an interesting one a lot of us were yeah very concerned and when I saw you line up the next day I was just absolutely so impressed Um, Because I'd followed your Instagram updates and your story and saw that you got out of the hospital like 4am. And I'm kind of curious, like, have you always had like the mental fortitude to just that it was never even a question whether or not you were going to line up the next day or kind of like what kind of were you thinking during the hospital stay and then the next day, like what got you to the line again? Yeah, so that was an interesting one. Because unfortunately, when I got to the hospital, a bunch of trauma cases came in. So I was kind of put on the back burner and just hung out in emergency for 10 hours, <laughs> um, just waiting for x-rays and CTs to make sure everything was okay. And then I got everything cleared from that. And the doctor cleared me. I had experienced no concussion symptoms and helmet was fine and I never lost consciousness. So they cleared me for concussion. 
I got back here at 4 a.m. and slept basically until the last minute. And even when I woke up, I wasn't sure if I was going to race, but I knew I was just going to get on my bike, move the legs, and we're just living down the road from that crit. So I was just going to ride with the team over there. And then we get there and I see my team doctor and chat with her about it. I'm like, okay, maybe I'll just like line up and do the first couple laps and just see how I feel. And then I obviously started getting those pre-race jitters and like excited for it and any pain or anything I was experiencing kind of just dissolved. And in my head, because I'd been cleared by doctors to race, I figured it was best for me to get out there and just go around, go through the motions again. I've had enough bad crashes, especially on the track, uh, that have taken me years to get over working with uh, psychologists and working through trauma from those. Um, And what I found is as long as I physically am safe to do so, getting back out there as soon as possible and just tricking my mind and my body into understanding that it's okay and I'm safe and I can do it and I can ride a wheel and I can move around the pack and I'm not going to necessarily crash. Um, I think is one of the biggest things into allowing me to mentally recover from a crash. And especially in a year like this where we're racing every week, the last thing I really wanted to deal with was trauma that just kind of builds up from a crash and that being my last experience on the bike heading into a race a week or two later, if that makes sense. I guess... On the topic of trauma, if you are open to discussing some of the darker sides of the sport, we can move into um, that conversation. There are a few articles on this, but essentially you had a alleged sexual abuse case with a Belgian team last year. And unfortunately, this is something that is extremely prevalent in this sport, especially for female cyclists. Um, And through your experience, what do you think governing bodies, teams, um, the sport in general can do about it in terms of reducing, eliminating, et cetera, just this from happening again? Yeah. So that sexual assault and harassment case I went through was actually back in 2017 when I was a second year junior and very excited to be over in Belgium for the first time racing well for second time racing road but like racing for a Belgian team and living that life that everyone from North America especially really desires because that's where you really grow as a cyclist and then to have that happen to me and that Really, like at first, I just really didn't want to believe it. And kind of, I think, what many women do when they experience sexual abuse or assault or harassment is you just kind of blank over it and move on and just try to put it on the back step. And obviously, there's a lot of shame that comes with it, like unnecessary shame. And so it took me a while to actually tell my parents about it when I got home. And as you know, the story didn't come out till last year. So I had talked anonymously to a journalist about it in 2019. And then I just started hearing about too many other females experiencing the same thing. And 
being approached by a few who maybe had tied the story to me and just asking if I would share my story again, which I, at that point, I'm like, this, like, it's one thing to share a story anonymously, but then once people, I mean, understand that there's a human behind it, it kind of gets more attention, which is good and bad. (laughs) But I think it's important. How about, can I, can I jump in here and kind of ask a foundational question? Because, you know, we are, we, meaning us here in the United States, are still reeling from Larry Nasser, Michigan State, U.S. gymnastics. You know, four women Olympian gymnasts just testified on Capitol Hill about how the Federal Bureau of Investigation fell down in its reporting and investigating of credible allegations of sexual assault by Larry Nasser against these women. And I think from reading the article that one of the interviews that you gave with cycling, uh, Canadian cycling magazine, you know, part of it starts with the fact that you're dealing with a person who you, who has a position of trust over you. So Larry Nasser was a medical doctor, the person who, you know, you've alleged sexual assault with was a team swaneer, you know, somebody whose job was to give you massages post-race. And part of it, I think, is identifying when you have been the victim of a sexual assault, as opposed to a quote-unquote language barrier or something that isn't there. Like, how hard was it for you to identify that what you had just experienced was not appropriate, that this is not what is supposed to happen in a professional or in any type of relationship. Yeah, like you said, uh, it was a swinger, and they he's supposed to take care of massage, your nutrition, all of this. Uh, it's a person of power. You're 18, <laughs> or had just turned 18, and First of all, nobody tells you what sexual harassment or assault looks like. Like it's not always obvious. It could just be like some inappropriate text messages from uh, that swinger, or inappropriate touching, or whatnot. But I don't know. You kind of it's easy to trick yourself into thinking that this is what it's supposed to be like, or this is what it's going to be like, or what it's going to take if I want to be pro and race in Europe. And it's a sick and twisted idea that you convince yourself of. And then, like, for me, it wasn't really until I was home and a year or two later, and it it was just another kind of male power figure in my life who hugged me and kissed me on the cheek, and that set me off. Like, I had extreme emotion towards that, and it triggered me. And I talked to my parents about it and I'm like, hey, I need to see somebody and I need to address this now because clearly I have a lot of trauma from this that I have not addressed. And yeah, like a lot to process from that. I mean, it's tough, especially in a sport where you're a female and there's so many males with team directors and team owners and all that. And like when I originally told my story nothing or approached my team about it nothing really happened until 
apparently multiple people had said something similar. And so when you're just not believed originally, it's, it's really tough to trust people and trust yourself about what actually happened. So I think where this can lead us is like, first step is whenever someone says something, and this is just generally for everybody, like no matter how old they are or how young they are, like, or what they are alleging, you have to take it seriously because you don't know how much this could mess them up or change their life experiences. And just back to your question, Selene, of how we can like just change the system <laughs> towards this is a couple of ideas. Just having talking, talked to a journalist that we've brainstormed is things like we have a doping sep- seminar or webinar we have to do every year. Why don't we have something like that for sexual harassment and abuse that all riders, all staff worldwide, like a worldwide regulated thing that they have to do it. And not only is it like what you do, if you are, do experience it, but what are the signs of it? Who can you talk to? Who should you talk to? Like, what are the steps going to be if you actually want to file it? Because that was something else I had no idea about. Like I eventually started working with the Cyclist Alliance because there was no way I was looking at the UCI site and trying to navigate myself how I was going to properly file my complaint. So yeah, there just needs to be more visible resources uh, for that everybody knows and understands, knows where to find them, and more people, I guess, who can help people figure out what to do because not everyone has incredible parents who can help like sit with you and just for hours and help you navigate what steps to take. Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that the UCI, I guess, website or resources that they offer are not so straightforward that you can just look them up is, um, I mean, I didn't know that that's pretty, that's not, not ideal. (laughs) Um, from what I've seen, the Cyclist Alliance has put a lot of pressure on them to change that. And things have been changing over the past year, especially. I've seen a lot of updates in that. But I mean, a year ago when I was going through this, that wasn't the case. Um, and I mean, I just love how they crack down on sock length and all of that. But hey, sexual assault and harassment and stuff seems a little more harmful to a lot of people in the sport. But you know. That's- yeah. That's that. Let's uh, let's ban the super talk instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How did you go about doing it? I mean, you've talked about the Cyclist Alliance. You know, what were the steps that you actually had to take? Because I can guarantee you that out of a thousand people who may listen to this show, one of them or two of them will probably be in a situation where they're just like, I need to know this information. This may happen to me. And that is one, terrible, and it's awful and shouldn't happen. But two, when you're the victim of sexual assault, sexual abuse, harassment, the thing that you're not thinking about is how do I report this? How do I, you know, like you're trying to deal with the trauma. You're trying to deal with the pain that's been caused you. So you might not be in a position to be like, okay, I'm going to go out and Google how to do this. 
So if you could provide kind of a primer or a guide for an athlete who has, you know, suffered some kind of sexual assault or trauma or harassment, where should he or she turn to? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it can be very variable depending on where you are. So because I was dealing, I'm from Canada, but I was dealing with an international situation, it made sense for me to go through the UCI. If you're in Canada, though, then dealing with Cycling Canada or Sport Canada or your provincial organization would be probably a pathway you'd go. But the process for me dealing with the UCI, like like I said, I was lucky enough to get in touch with the Cyclist Alliance, where if you are confused about anything, I would say that is kind of your first step. And they are incredible to work with. And they know the system and have worked through enough of these cases that they can clearly guide you on the steps to take the UCI. But what it came down to was basically writing up a full document, uh, outlining what happened to me, finding other teammates and other people who could testify and say similar things or make a statement. It came down to going through like dates of incidents and all of that. And basically just one big document with text messages and screenshots of everything. So like if you basically, if you've ever experienced this kind of case, keep all the documentation, keep the, don't delete those text messages because if you're ever going to file it, that's the kind of thing you're going to need. Take screenshots of that kind of stuff. And yeah, and it just came down to submitting that to the UCI, and they reached out to me with a couple other things they wanted me to submit um, and questions. And after that, I mean, when I submitted it, I believe this has been a change that the Cyclist Alliance has enforced too. But at that time, I was no longer a party in their investigation, so I was not really getting any updates or there was a good chance I was not going to find out the outcome before journalists found out and before it went public. So I could wake up one day and just see my name in an article about what the UCI came to a decision on, which I think is extremely wrong. And I think that's something that the Cyclist Alliance has been pushing to change. But yeah, I mean, even now it's kind of scary because there hasn't been an outcome yet for my case. So how is that even possible? Like as a former prosecutor, notifying victims of a crime that the case has happened, that the person has pleaded guilty, that the case is going to go to trial. That was part of my job and responsibility because when justice was meted out, you as a victim had the right to make a statement regarding the sentence of the person. Now, I understand criminal trials in the United States are different than, you know, the administrative and civil proceedings before the UCI, but, like, how can you not be a part of this? I know, and that is obviously (laughs) very wrong, and I don't really understand what the logic is behind that, and I could definitely see that's why that kind of system deters many women from, or people in general, from filing a case because it doesn't really feel safe to do so. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that right now needs to change in the system. And it might be in the process of changing because I know they have been working on a lot. 
lately. But so what in the whole process after that experience, did you find lended support? Like the Cyclist Alliance, for example, or telling your parents, um, I guess what I'm getting at is like, what would you advise somebody who might be going through a similar experience to do to, I guess, just, yeah, find support for a resolution of some kind? Well, I definitely found once, like, I wouldn't recommend coming out public with your story unless that's something you feel comfortable doing um, and have thought through what possible repercussions there could be like I had people telling me why would you do this like what about your future career as a cyclist (laughs) and why risk it and I mean that kind of thing is just so wrong like right you're like yeah I understand that I guess this could risk it but why is this the kind of thing that could risk your career as a cyclist anyway that's a whole other tangent but if you're comfortable with it tell people like not publicly but people you're close to because then you really understand that People believe you. (laughs) People understand and they want to support you through it because you don't realize how many people have been through this until you start talking about it. And just having that support and that kind of network of people who can relate to it is huge. Like I I had friends, both male and female, coming out to me and just telling me their own stories with it. And it made me extremely sad and broke my heart. It also just makes you feel understood and makes you feel like you're all working through something together. Just kind of that network. Definitely go talk to a professional because I, many people, I don't think actually acknowledge or realize how much trauma these kinds of things can cause and how much your body can hold on to that trauma until you've actually talked about it to somebody who can help you process it properly yeah family just just people people are amazing (laughs) when you find the right people to talk to stuff about it can go a very long way in in that term um thank you so much for being like willing to talk about this and um i know it's not easy to talk about and i think you are very brave for telling your story even though you recognize that it could potentially have harmful backlash either from media or cycling opportunities for whatever reason. Um, I think it's very important that you shared your story and I'm very appreciative towards you for that. If you have any last thoughts there, um, now would be probably the best time to share them. Otherwise we can kind of keep chugging along. (laughs) I'd be curious to know how you're doing with it today. You know, it's been four years now since, you know, since those events started, you know, and I know that the case controversy is still ongoing, that there is no resolution, but you've had the opportunity to process, you've had the opportunity to grow, you, you're an adult now, you know, you've, you've, you're, you're in your twenties, you know, are you, are you okay? Yeah. Um, I'm okay. I'm good. I, if you asked me this last year, probably not. Like every time I had to readdress or answer questions from the UCI, brought up a ton of emotion just talking about it all again. And it got to a point where I'm like, I don't even want to file this because this is like, I, I can't deal with this amount of emotion I have towards it every single time. But overall, like it, has for sure made me stronger and 
given me a stronger voice when I'm faced with situations like that, or just, I mean, anything of that nature, I would say, yes, I'm good. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You fill your life with a lot aside from cycling. Um, like you're currently in school and, um, that's right, right. You're, you're in school right now. Okay. (laughs) And then you also have been sharing a lot of yoga and weightlifting and juggling. How do you balance it all? And I guess what's the, um, what's the motivations behind the yoga weightlifting and juggling? A a couple of things. I thrive off routine. (laughs) So having a lot on the go, even though when you say it like that, it sounds like a lot. But it, it's just like consistency over like doing a ton <laughs> at once. Um, so a little bit of yoga every day, a little bit of juggling every day. And just having that routine and that consistency in my life keeps me sane and keeps me arguably, I think, more productive than just sitting here and being like, okay, what, what do I do next? Like, I guess I go back and finish scandal on Netflix or something. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. And then also as a cyclist and I think as an athlete in general, you're putting a lot on the line in sport and there's so many unknowns of uh, whether you're going to crash or get injured or what could happen. So I have always found lots of comfort in having something else on the go, even if it's at a much smaller scale than cycling, just as like that, what, what if, or that (laughs) fallback in case something were to happen. So like school is one of those things. Um, currently working on my undergrad and major in biology, minor in kinesiology, and eventually I'd love to go into vet school post-cycling. So that's what we're working towards very slowly, very, very slowly in that department. Yeah, yoga became a huge thing in my life, I'd say six or seven years ago. And for the reason uh, most people start yoga, because you can't actually touch your toes. <laughs> You're like, I should probably work on my flexibility. And so I started going to a studio in Bull Ridge and worked with an incredible teacher. And I feel like that's really the key with yoga is finding someone you like and can relate to and it makes you feel welcome so I worked with an incredible teacher there for years and just in my nature like if you follow me on Instagram you'll see I'm flipping myself upside down all the time and doing these weird balance poses so it's just in my nature to push myself (laughs) and do weird things so uh, I loved that part of yoga and that was a huge huge draw for me at first and then I really got into the whole meditative side of it and the breathwork side of it. And throughout 2018, I suffered three concussions in the span of about six months and took a, had to take a huge break from cycling at the end of that year. And so yoga really became something I could put more energy into and kind of really grounded me because when you, you suffer through that much and I was supposed to go to a world cup on the track and they pulled me from it because of the concussions like that is a really hard thing to go through so like yeah putting my energy into the whole meditation and breathing and just really getting to know myself and control 
my mind, I guess, and my thought process. And the whole idea of yoga is the union between like mind and the body. And so that became a huge focus of mine. And from there, I'm like, okay, I, I just want to know so much about this. So I might as well become a yoga teacher. So that's what I <laughs> worked on for the next two years and just got my 200-hour certificate. Yeah, yoga teaching certificate last year or the beginning of this year. Congratulations. That's awesome. And thank you. And I mean, it's really like I I love talking in front of people and teaching and I, I coach spin when I'm home. So I knew I like being in front of a group and working with people, but then also just to expand my own practice when I'm on the road. And to have a great understanding of how I can incorporate breath work and meditation into making me a stronger athlete. Because I think we don't put enough emphasis on how important being able to breathe properly and, yeah, (laughs) how important that is. Um, So last year especially, I did a lot of stuff in breathing and being up at altitude uh, I do breathwork stuff every day, and I think arguably it has made a big difference to what my power numbers look like at altitude. <laughs> so I don't know, which they didn't look like the first time I came here. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, there was many thoughts there. Sorry. No, about we'll that, take but. your word for it. <laughs> do you teach your teammates yoga classes ever? Kind of. <laughs> we've talked about doing more yoga than we have actually executed, but. That is something I need to do more, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Have you always incorporated weightlifting into your regimen, or is that something more recent? Uh, Yeah, I've been in the gym since I was like 15 or 16. Weightlifting has always been a part of it. And I mean, especially as a track racer, you do a lot of gym as cross-training. But I think being a well-rounded athlete and doing strength work has been extremely beneficial to me on the road especially as a sprinter and has knock on wood been a main reason why I've never broken a collarbone (laughs) it's just having (laughs) some strength and stability and uh, a little bit of muscle I mean upper baby you know cycling (laughs) can't have upper body but I think it is actually a good thing so (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Some bone density goes a long way. <laughs> it really does. Um, and then the juggling, what's what's up with that? Okay, so have you seen F1 on Netflix? I have, yeah. It's a favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what where it actually the idea stemmed from. And I wish I'd had this idea back when I was going through concussion recovery. I think it learning to juggle would have been a really good thing to do. Um, just for reaction and focus and all of that. But anyway, so that's where it's come into play now is crit racing and track racing is so about that reaction time and just being ultra focused for that hour or 15 minutes if you're on a track. And yeah, reaction, focus, all of that. And so if you see me and my teammates, the the difference or the... um juggling version when I have teammates around is tossing around a a tennis ball before the race. If you see us, we're always like tossing a tennis ball back and forth, some left hand, right hand, you know, all that stuff. 
Um, but if I'm on my own, I'll be juggling and just anything to kind of activate that, those senses. And I mean, it gets you in the zone. It lightens your mood before a race too. <laughs> yeah. Which I, yeah. You guys always look like you're having a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it is a lot of fun. And I think when you have like to take out the whole reaction work that it does but when you're relaxed and you're having fun especially in a team sport like you're more cohesive you're just kind of it works to just bring you together as one and when you go into a race laughing I think you race better at least I race better yeah definitely that's a pretty good segue um in terms of you've been just at a really high level in the sport for a very long time. Um, and we've seen a lot of athletes, I want to say more than usual this year, like announce retirements or just kind of burn out. And how have you been able to just keep it fun and avoid that um, this entire time? Well, I think a huge thing is like, yeah, I did start riding when I was really young and started racing. I did my first BC super week when I was 14. <laughs> so it's, you look back on it. It's that's been a while. It's been like eight years. But from the beginning, I was never really pushed. Even once I started working with coaches, like it was always kind of on my own timetable. And as if there was ever a point where I didn't enjoy it, like that was my call. I'd be out. But that point never came. So it's always just been enjoyable for me. And I think now, like I work with my dad is my head coach. Um, and then I have a strength coach as well. And just anybody I work with, I think they, they know how in tune I am with my own body and how well I know myself. And so there's a lot of trust in that I know what is right for me. And there's also just always lots of talk on how we're balancing it and checking in on how we're doing and just never quite pushing to that point of burnout and if we feel like we're getting there like I said in 2018 I took like three months four months off of racing and quite a while of that was just fully off the bike so if I ever feel like I'm getting to that point like you just gotta back it right off and (laughs) listen to what your body's trying to tell you because it's when you push through that that's when you crack yourself mentally or physically and when it stops being fun too that's also when you crack yourself mentally like I don't know. I always just want to have fun in life and enjoy what I'm doing. And if I'm not enjoying it, I'm I'm a quick person to be like, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I mean, obviously, you're going to have your ups and downs, highs and lows you have to get through. But if it's a long term thing, if you're not enjoying something, then that's not the right thing for you. Do you think maybe like the amount of variety that you have is something helpful like you mentioned you're on the track you're racing crits you're doing stage races so you've got a lot of variety you're not just honed in on one of them in particular I think mentally yes because that keeps you very activated throughout the year when you're okay like on to the next thing now on to the next thing now it's track now it's road now it's track you're kind of back and forth so as long as you give yourself that time to rest between that then mentally, I think that's a very good thing. Physically, it takes a lot of very particular programming (laughs) and working with coaches and national team and whoever else you're working with to 
figure out where we can slot in these rests and how we can stay fresh and how we can peak for, uh, <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's a, like, like I had Pan Am Temps this year. There's all the USA crit stuff. There's, I have track worlds next month. So you're like, what, what you really have to figure out what is your priority. And if you're not going to, if you're not doing well at some of the other stuff, you have to be gentle on yourself and quick to say, well, that wasn't my priority. This is what I'm really training for. And this is where I want to do well. So mentally, yes, physically, it is a very big balancing act that you have to, I think, have a lot of people on your side to work with you and make sure you stay on top of that balancing act. Totally different train of thought. How did you get into wanting to be a vet? Uh, So I grew up horseback riding and I did show jumping for many years until I was about 15. Um, So I did that for like 10 years of my life and just love animals. I am also a total fish nerd. (laughs) I, at one point, I think I had like five different aquariums around my house. Um, So I actually want to go into aquatic vet (laughs) to be an aquatic vet and like work in a rescue like like kind of yeah work uh in a rescue or out in the field like monitoring research and data collection and all that kind of stuff so that's kind of my dream of where I want to go with that and I think that stems from just my love for fish and I grew up on a river as well where we had salmon come up every year and die on the beaches and circle of life so this explains your personal logo doesn't it either from the maggie coleslister.com the piranha website yeah it's a piranha that's what it is yeah pink piranha yeah what's the story there because a pink piranha there's some thought process that went into that design yeah there actually is a good story there so if you'll notice on the track i've actually been riding a titanium track bike uh that has that same paint scheme and it's from Quadra Island, which is up in BC. Um, Sam builds them and they're called Naked Bicycles. So her name is El Piranha, my track bike. And where that name El Piranha came from was my first year racing junior track world championships. I crashed, I think, three times over the championships. One of them being during the Omnium in the points race. So the very last race of the Omnium, I crashed, got back up, covered in uh, slivers, and I finished third and got a bronze medal as a first year going in with zero expectations because I'd never raced internationally before. So that was quite incredible having my medal. And then I, after the whole race, this was over in Switzerland. Just this will, that'll set up for the context. Um, so I was lying in the medical tent after winning my medal and getting slivers pulled out of my butt and my back and all that and some old French guy walks by and he had just watched the racing and watched me win a medal. And he's like, L piranha. So like, I'm a fighter in the race and <laughs> just keep fighting tooth and nail until I win that medal. And so that's where that nickname came from. And then that's where my track bike name came from. And that's what inspired that logo. And then pink. I just love the color pink. Where does Maggie Cole's lister go from here? You know, it's, it's, it's October, almost October of 2021. You know, the road season is now on its its way out. You joked 
at the beginning about playing around in cyclocross at one point in time, but I'm sure there's a lot of focus for track with, with world championships coming up, you know, like, well, world championships almost are always coming up, but like, where do you take this? Where are you going for the next couple of years with this sport? Yeah. So I signed again to race with DNA next year. And so we'll be focusing there on, I mean, quite a diverse, hopefully there's going to be more road racing back in North America. So some of that. We'd love to do an international project at one point on the road. I mean, next year on the track, we have Commonwealth Games. The year after, there's Pan American Games, and then it's the Olympics again <laughs> in Paris 2024. And that right now is kind of what's steering all my decisions I make is the idea of going to Paris 2024 on the track and racing Omnium Madison Team Pursuit there. So, uh, pretty lofty goal, but that's what I. I'm working towards and that's gonna kind of dictate what my next three years will look like but dna next year and i mean over the next near future i'd love to get back over to europe again and race in that crowd and with that peloton and experience get back into that kind of experience of european racing and and see how i do see where i stack up How come us Americans are never allowed in the Commonwealth Games? Is it because of the whole revolution? Is that is that the reason why we're no longer? Because you're not a Commonwealth country. (laughs) (laughs) Got to be a Commonwealth country to do Commonwealth Games. Sorry. (laughs) You have to talk to Madison and Hamilton and Washington. Do you have the Queen on your money? (laughs) No, no. Regrettably, that's not the case. I guess in the fall and the winter, you've got track worlds coming up, but at what point do you take a break? And when you're taking a break, what does that look like? Well, I mean, we now have that Legion crit uh, Sacramento. So I'll come back from track worlds and hit that. Um, And I feel like right now my life is kind of living that way, like one month at a time. (laughs) But after that, I plan on taking a bit of a break and then just some off season hopefully get somewhere warm. This is kind of something I have to figure out over the next couple of weeks on my list of to-dos, what my winter is going to look like. But yeah, get home, see the family, snuggle my puppy. Yeah, get somewhere warm because Canada is not that during the winter. (laughs) So to keep this training trending in the right direction, hopefully get down to probably California or Arizona. Maggie, Thank you so much for joining Celine and I on Celine's first lead producer show. Yes. Congrats, Celine. You crushed it. <laughs> it was so fun actually talking to, talking to you, talking to both of you. And then especially you, Celine, because we've been racing together all year. And so this is really special. <laughs> I know. It's fun to just not just quickly exchange words on the start line. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you both for having me. That was great. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Go to wideanglepodium.com to find out more about the full bevy of shows that are available there. 
Today's show was written and produced by Celine Oberholzer and edited by me, Rob Kelly. Next week, we go back in with the full Crit Squad to cover the last event of the USA Crits calendar, the Winston-Salem Cycling Classic. So come back here next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation.